Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Ashman family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Ashman family JCC empowers you to experience Jewish paths toward a life of joy, purpose, and meaning through innovative Jewish learning and wellness programs, community building, and initiatives to develop the next generation of Jewish leaders. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 369, Jewish Mysticism. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofberg. And this is the last interview in our long series of episodes exploring Jewish spirituality. Next week, we're going to have a conversation just between Lex and me, where we wrap up this series. So I'm really excited for that conversation. But I'm also really excited about today's interview Our guest today is Ariel Mays, who is a professor of religious studies at Stanford University and one of the leading scholars of Jewish mysticism. So this is really going to be a capstone to our exploration of Jewish spirituality with somebody who can really help us put some of these ideas together in a more organized fashion. A few more words of introduction about our guest today. Ariel Mays is Assistant Professor of Religious Studies at Stanford University. Previously, he was the Director of Jewish Studies and Visiting Assistant Professor of Modern Jewish Thought at Hebrew College in the Boston area, and he has also been a Research Fellow at the Frankel Institute for Advanced Judaic Studies of the University of Michigan. Ariel Mays holds a Ph.D. in Jewish Studies from Harvard University, as well as rabbinic ordination from Beit Midrash Harel in Israel. He is the author of many articles, as well as many books, including Speaking Infinities, God and Language in the Teachings of Rabbi Dov Baer of Mezrich, and the two volumes, A New Hasidism Roots and A New Hasidism Branches, with Art Green, who was our guest back in episode 133. Ariel Mays is currently completing a manuscript called The Shores of Devotion, Ritual, and the Life of the Commandments in Early Hasidism, and his next project is called As a Deep River Rises, Judaism, Ecology, and Environmental Ethics. Ariel Mays also wrote an article in Gashmius Magazine, which was our guest last week, which is called How to Read a Hasidic Text, A Quick Guide. I should say one more note that Ariel Mays and I spent a lot of time together this summer as educators on the Bronfman Fellowship, which is a program for creative and intellectual young people. And Ariel and I got to spend a lot of time together trying to convey our ideas to young people. And I discovered in our weeks together that Ariel Mays is not only an incredible scholar, but also a wonderful human being whose scholarship and his practice all are intertwined. And on that note, I'm really excited to say that if you enjoy today's conversation, Ariel Mays is going to be teaching a three-session class on Jewish mysticism and ecology as part of our Unyeshiva Digital Center for Jewish Learning and Unlearning, which is going to begin in April. Ariel Mays, welcome to Judaism Unbound. It is so great to have you. Great to be here. So I wanted to ask you to start in a kind of big picture way. We've been doing a lot of talking about Jewish spirituality, a little bit about mysticism. But if we're thinking about these things from less of a 
what is happening today? How are people experiencing thinking about it? But more in terms of the history of Jewish spirituality and mysticism, what do you think is the best way to start thinking about that subject? Where do we, what people, what texts, what do we start thinking about when we start thinking about that? It's a great question and obviously an interesting and a very fraught one. First, I think we should think about terms like spirituality and mysticism. Mysticism as a noun, which is something that we have in common currency and we use quite easily today, is a noun that in some ways is only three or maybe 400 years old. The idea of mystic or something that is hidden beyond the eyes, it comes from a root meaning the eyes being closed, is something that is obviously ancient, but there it's applied to mystical theology, mystical modes of readings, mystical practices, but the idea of an abstract noun, mysticism, that exists is something of a modern invention. Spirituality is by no means an easy word to translate into Hebrew, although many of us have a word for it in modern Hebrew or even in classical medieval Hebrew. It wasn't always the case. Now, in a certain sense, spirituality could be said to be, might be said to be, a deep yearning for an intense encounter with the divine, with the transcendent, with the imminent, with a transformative moment of religious awakening. And in that sense, it's an ancient practice. You could say that this mode of approaching life goes back to Moses, at least in the biblical imagination, to the prophets, to Ezekiel for sure, to the vision of Isaiah. These become sort of characters, type scenes, um, heroes for later rabbinic sources, for later mystical sources. They're not necessarily Kabbalists. In fact, we know that they're not. The Kabbalists have a particular doctrine, a particular way of thinking, a particular vocabulary, and they're a medieval invention. Jewish spirituality, as I see it, has many different stages. It has these ancient roots. It includes certain dimensions of the rabbinic project, sometimes visible in what feel like esoteric texts. The famous story of the four who enter the pardes, the orchard, the garden of the imagination, perhaps. Another, the famous story of the rabbis who are studying the works of the chariot, burning the birds that are upon them. You could also say, and this is something that scholars have correctly argued, that there's a deep-seated spirituality within the rabbinic sources that expresses itself as a love of Torah and a love of law and a love of God through the nexus of both of those things. I think that dry, arid legalism is in fact quite alien to the rabbinic project as a whole. Now, in the antique world, there are many modes in which these impulses express themselves. Perhaps the most famous is the Hechalot, or palace sources, texts that describe the ascents of various rabbinic figures. It's not actually about their experiences, most likely. They're written by later authors, but they've chosen these histories to make their stories backwards compatible, to use the, uh, the phrase employed by one of the modern Hasidic teachers. When you say the antique world, when approximately are we talking about? That's a third rail, something between the 4th and 8th or 9th century, depending on who you ask. The CE, after. Yes, yes, after, yes. In the rabbinic period. Yeah, so it's, but it's coterminous with certain parts of the rabbinic period, meaning the Talmud is being codified and hashed out in these same years, and some of the same rabbis are definitely involved in both of these projects. And these sources involve going up into heaven and having new knowledge revealed and seeing the mysteries of the firmaments and all these sorts of things. There are ancient ascent texts. You find them in ancient Christianity for sure. You also find them in early Islam. 
But I think all this really intensifies or transforms with the meeting of Neoplatonism of a way of thinking about the world in which all being flows forth from an original primal source, and it is constantly both flowing outward and yearning to return back. This is a form of thinking that Jews come into contact with um, toward the second half of the first millennium and then becomes very impactful. But it's also in conversation with the Muslim thinkers and mystics that Jews find a word for spirituality, and I mean that quite literally. The Arabic word for the spirit or what we might call spirituality, ruhaniyat, it becomes ruhaniyut. Spirituality or the spirit or spiritual vitality or all these things that we try to struggle to translate into Hebrew, we learn the word shefa ever-flowing divine energy. Um, that's another word that's taken into the Jewish lexicon from the Sufi vocabulary. So Jewish spirituality can be said to be constantly in dialogue with its own textual tradition, as well as with the traditions around it. And another key moment in this story is the advent of Kabbalah in the 12th and 13th centuries. Okay, so before we get there, I want to back up to the era that you've been talking about, because just for our listeners to track this, we are now already in the Middle Ages of the Common Era. In other words, we're less than a thousand years ago. And we think of Judaism as something that's like from 2,000, 3,000 years ago. So I want to ask a little bit about that first 2,000 years and to ask you whether it's right to say that to the extent that what we might call today spirituality was part of Judaism throughout its history, as you described, it's sounding to me like that may have been true for a very small elite group here and there. And I guess I'm wondering whether we can say anything or speculate about what we might again today call the spirituality of the common Jew. And the more I learn about the history of ancient Judaism, I kind of feel like probably it wasn't all that spiritual. And then there are a few people that are finding ways to go deeper and to have more spiritual experience, but that's not necessarily translating to the masses. And so then maybe you have two different kinds of Judaism, as we have today, where there are some people that are really having this intense spiritual experience. Most people are not. And I guess we can talk about this much later, but I'm wondering ultimately if what we're seeing today is the potential that that small group experience of a spiritual Judaism is now being demanded by and also to some extent accessible to a much, much larger group of Jews than it ever has been before. It's a great question. You know, in many respects, I'm a firm believer in Ein Chadash Tachadashemesh. There's nothing new under the sun, and the same struggles that we fight in modern Judaism, the same questions that we have to a certain degree have been reverberating in Jewish history for a very long time. And this division between the religious elites or intellectual elites or other kinds certainly takes on different forms in different times, but it is certainly a through line of every religious tradition. One of my friends once pointed out to me, we were talking about the spiritual vitality of Yom Kippur. And he said to me, you know, it would have been very odd to be a biblical Jew in the day of Yom Kippur because you just sort of like sit there. Maybe you're in Jerusalem and maybe you're not. And you kind of wonder on what's going, wonder what's going on. And you see this guy getting into the swimming pool a bunch of times and then coming back out and then getting on different clothes. And eventually he kills something and then someone else walks a goat into the desert. And you're like, okay, great. Most transcendent spiritual experience of my life. Maybe and maybe not. I think it's true that if you woke up a biblical Jew in the middle of the night and ask them about deep theological questions or spiritual experiences, probably they would not exactly know what you're talking about. On the other hand, is this a minority report? Well, yes and no. If you look at the book of Leviticus, for example, it's addressed to the priests. 
primarily. On the other hand, sections of it are not, like, you know, a third of the book. And it has a kind of rich and robust approach to religious life, which is embodied. The sensorium is flush with smells and tastes. It's all about divine intimacy and the hazards and the duties of intimacy with God. So on the other hand, this yearning is really a part of the deep fabric of our tradition. And I think that's true also in the rabbinic time. You know, we used to have this notion that, you know, first there was biblical Judaism and then there was rabbinic Judaism and it was all really one. Then we said, no, rabbinic Judaism is actually very different. And then we said, no, wait, actually rabbinic Judaism is just one of many Judaisms. And in fact, one of those other Judaisms is actually Christianity and it occurs all at the same time. And then we discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls and we're like, wow, there really were very, very different kinds of Judaisms there. Some of which, by the way, were deeply mystically inflected, again, not Kabbalistically, but mystically inflected in the sense of going up on high, having these transformative encounters. I like to think that while certain realms of knowledge and technical vocabularies and this kind of, you know, intensity were reserved for probably small layers, a small substrata of the Jewish community, one of the things that Judaism does very well is transform the mundane or the ordinary into at least a possibility for a profound religious encounter and a profound religious moment. It's not just a modern phenomenon that we look back and say, oh wait, maybe the ordinary can also be sacred. I think that that's one of the deep lessons of Jewish spirituality is that it is so precisely compatible with a vast array of what we might call the ordinary, the mundane, or even you know the secular, to use a term that doesn't fit in the ancient world at all. Now, Sholem has this point, Gershom Sholem, the 20th century historian of Jewish mysticism, history, thought, and everything else he could put his hands on. Sholem has a passage in his magnum opus, uh, Major Trends in Jewish Mysticism, where he describes the unique features of Jewish mysticism. Um, he says that Jewish mystics don't write in the first person, they always write in the third person, which is like most things, mostly true, but not entirely true. He says that it's distinguished by its love of language, its love of the Hebrew language in particular, but the love of language not as something to be overcome, but as something to be embraced. And the last is that we don't have mystics in Judaism like Julian of Norwich, Rabia in the Islamic context, these great women of the spirit who wrote, or at least had traditions transcribed in their name eventually. We know of almost no female mystics before the modern era, and then there's still relatively few and far between in the textual tradition. But part of what's so interesting about the work of scholarship is that confirmation bias works in scholarship by the way that we define our terms. And the famous scholar Grace Jansen, who was a scholar of mysticism in the Christian tradition and wrote about many of the great medieval female mystics, she pointed out that mysticism is a social construct and who counts as a mystic is a social construct. And here we could say what counts as spirituality is a social construct that lo and behold usually backs up and reifies and strengthens the dominant hierarchies. And if you just sit and read texts all day, you will forget about that. You'll never see it. And that too, I think, is something that has never really changed. Wow. There's a lot that you've brought so far that I'm really enjoying. Um, close to the top of the list is the vision of being a biblical observer of Yom Kippur. <laughs> I want to sit with that because I both agree and disagree, and I think it might point to something. But um, my experience that I've had in my life that I think is most comparable to somebody who would make a pilgrimage and watch, you know, these various 
sacrificial offerings, scapegoats, et cetera, et cetera. The closest thing I can think of is when I and a friend of mine went on a pilgrimage. We, we went on a road trip to Cooperstown, New York, where the Baseball Hall of Fame is, for the inauguration of two people, Ken Griffey Jr., Mike Piazza. I forget which year this was. And we went to Cooperstown and there were, no joke, like 50,000, 60,000 of us in a big field doing nothing. I mean, we were like, in a sense, doing nothing. We were watching. We were observers. But of course, we weren't doing nothing. Like we were surrounded by a sea of people that had all come for the same purpose, to celebrate the same few people, to celebrate a sport that all impacted us in different ways. And so while there was, yeah, there were speeches happening up on the stage, but most of it was me kibitzing with the people around me. Like, oh, you're a Mariners fan. I'm a Mets fan. You're the, but we're all here because we love baseball. Like, I think that's what it was probably like. like look, first off, look, I don't know how much any of this really happened. This is not a history, like, but imagining if it did, for me, it points to the the value of, in modern terms, going to synagogue to talk to Garfinkel, not necessarily to talk to God. You go to the sacrifices in Jerusalem to be surrounded by other people that are going to the sacrifices in Jerusalem. So I'm curious how that plays into our, our terminology and how we think about spirituality, but I mostly want a time jump. We're doing a, a lot of time jumping today because there's many different eras of Judaism we want to get to. Um, I want to get to Hasidism, which is like unfair because we haven't really dwelt fully in other eras. But Hasidism takes us much closer to today, to the last few hundred years. And I'd love for you to take us into how Hasidic tradition builds on these earlier forms of mystical spiritual experience, but also in certain senses, maybe brings something new to the table. Great. So in order to talk about Hasidism, I'm actually going to send us back to the medieval world. And I'm going to think about this question. I'm going to put your two questions together, Dan and Lex, about community, togetherness, life is with the people, and a kind of priding of secret knowledge or that which is secret and the restriction of certain ideas either to the elite because they're so complicated, who else can actually understand them or because we got to keep a hold on this and, you know, carry it with potholders because it can singe you if you don't understand it correctly. One of the other things that is true about Jewish mysticism is that it is largely an esoteric tradition before the modern time period. Esoteric there not just meaning confusing, but esoteric meaning that it is purposely kept under wraps. This is true in some of the earliest communiques that we have, one of the first texts written by the first one of the first Kabbalists, Kabbalists proper, those who work with the Sfirot or the ten powers or emanated personalities of the divine that you find in the early Kabbalistic sources. One of the earliest sources that we have there says it's someone chastising disciples who seem to have been putting things into writing and says, the, there are two versions of this um, this letter. He says, the written word either ein lo adon or ein lo aron. There are two different words. We don't know exactly which one. The written word has no master. You can't keep it under wraps. Or ein lo aron, you can't stick it on a bookshelf because written words, um, even in the age before Twitter and TikTok, have legs. Just to really clarify what's happening there, the, the Dalid and Reish, there's two letters in Hebrew that look like one another. And so those two profound, beautiful meanings come from like what could be defined as like bad handwriting or like not being able to tell whether it's a Dalid or a Reish, but both of those are really powerful. Exactly. And to a certain degree, they're both true. So you find in these Kabbalistic circles an emphasis on orality, an emphasis on person-to-person -person communication, and an emphasis on keeping these ideas 
out of public knowledge or if they're in public knowledge, which you find with the commentary of Nachmanides on the Torah, where he starts to use Kabbalistic secrets. But anyone who studied that, it's like hitting your head against a wall. You don't, it's like reading a book where you don't have the magical signifier signet ring that tells you this is what it actually means. You get the technical vocabulary, but you can't make heads or tails of it unless you're already initiated, which is kind of this interesting mystical paradox of certain secrets can only be communicated to someone who is a chacham umevin mida'ato, someone who is flush with wisdom and understands on their own, meaning you can only tell people that kind of already know. You can't bring someone into these secrets who doesn't already have some chush, some sense for them. So, the Zohar is this book that emerges in the 13th century and kind of explodes with a huge number of images of the divine, a kind of mythic retelling of every dimension of Judaism, but it's still largely restricted to the people who can actually understand it because it's written in a kind of bizarre hybrid mashup Aramaic that never existed and never will again, except for certain people who write in that even today. And Lurianic Kabbalah, the great revolution or renewal of Kabbalistic thinking that happens in Safed, in Sfat, in the 16th century is built on that same mode of thinking. And in both Lurianic and Zoharic Kabbalah, the community of fellow travelers is key. The community of fellow travelers in the Zohar are the scholars who walk around, they're called the Chevraya, and spend no time in the Beit Midrash, in the study hall, they wander around and they talk to trees and they talk to each other and they talk to the trees and they talk to the world and they come alive as a part of this vital landscape and the personalities there and the friends that they're traveling along with are really the key. It's also the same in Luriana Kabbalah except they were probably real people. From everything that we know, some of the great personalities of the 16th century are there and they're sitting together in Safed, in Sfat. There are a couple of dozen of them at any time in different kind of concentric circles there who are really living this kind of mystical dream. But that changes with Hasidism in the 18th century. And in part that has to do with the massive upheavals of the Sabbatean movement in the 17th century. Um, Shabbatai Tzvi was a Jew from the Ottoman Empire who, for the first time in a very long time, got all the Jews thinking about the same thing. Um, Shabtai Tzvi, who proclaims himself the Messiah, and then perhaps more importantly, is proclaimed the Messiah by one of his followers who saw him in a dream. And then, you know, it kind of gets awkward when he converts to Islam toward the end of his life. But even that, they figured out a way of rethinking that. It really fractures the Jewish world, but it unites the Jewish world at the same time. And people all over the world are talking about Shabbatai Tzvi. But what's happened there is that certain dimensions of Lurianic Kabbalah, of this kind of mystical dream world that is cooked up in Sfat in the previous century, they become much more widely known through Sabbatean doctrine. But Sabbatean doctrine could only take hold if Lurianic Kabbalah was already well known. It had spread and ritualized in all sorts of ways all over the world. So by the 17th century, Many people couldn't make heads or tails of a Kabbalistic manuscript, but they're doing Kabbalistic things. And that's also true today, by the way. So you get this kind of porousness in between what was being held as knowledge in small circles of the elites, like Chaim Vital, the great scribe and creative interpreter of Luria, keeps telling everyone, I've got these great manuscripts and you can't see them but he's not the only one who has Lurianic manuscripts and oral traditions, and they circulate very widely. Hasidism emerges on the scene in the century after the Sabbatean debacle, 
sometime in the 1730s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, or 90s, depending <laughs> on who you ask. The traditional narrative is that the Baal Shem Tov, Rabbi Yisrael ben Eliezer, born at some point around the turn of the 18th century in a town in Subcarpathian Eastern Europe, possibly what we think of as Romania, possibly what we think of as Ukraine. We know very little about his background that doesn't come from legendary sources, but he, in the 1730s, 40s, 50s, begins to teach a new, but new in the Jewish sense of new and old at the same time, new old approach to religious life, one that is infused and inflected with mysticism and with the languages of Kabbalah, but which also has a healthy dose of what Martin Buber will call, not in these words, religious existentialism and a kind of approach to religious living, which is not only concerned with what happens in the cosmic realm, but also what happens within the heart and soul of the individual. And this is something that's very important to understanding why Hasidism takes hold so much of Jewry in the late 18th and early 19th and 20th centuries, how in some ways it actually is a modern phenomenon. You get interesting Hasidic reflections on the nature of interiority exactly at the same time that Kant is trying to rethink the nature of interiority and enlightenment and obligation. German pietists, not the Jews, but the Halle pietists who are trying to remake Lutheran religion as a kind of embodied experiential personal revelation religion. All of these things are happening in Western and Eastern Europe. So Hasidism has a, a number of critical features. One of them, however, Lex, and this goes back to your question, is the power of spiritual community. Hasidism offers a different vision of what it means to be a person, a person intimately intertwined with their spiritual community. And this is not just an imagined thing. We know that Hasidism is born and raised in these small fraternities around charismatic teachers. And at a certain point, people stop living close to their teachers and they have to go on pilgrimage. Like Jews for many thousands of years have gone on pilgrimage, either to the temple or to other places. But Hasidism, like many things, it doesn't precisely innovate. I think that word is not helpful. The novum of Hasidism or the innovation of Hasidism is always in the way that it takes things that feel familiar and transforms them in powerful and repercussive ways. You walk to visit the teacher. This is a famous Yiddish song about the Rebbe of Kotsk. You don't drive to visit the Rebbe of Kotsk. You walk. And you walk so that you have the time to think and experience and to meet fellow travelers. There's a great Hasidic source from the early 19th century that says exactly this. Some people think you go to visit the Rebbe, the kind of charismatic leader who is the nucleus of the Hasidic world. Some people think that you go on pilgrimage to hear their words of Torah. And that's not really the most important thing. Some people think that you go in order to pray in a community. And that's not really the most important thing. Rabbi Kolonimus Kalman Epstein of Krakow, the author of this source, says the most important thing is both the personal discovery, but the people you meet along the way. This is spectacular. And Dan and I were actually chatting. We're both kind of spellbound. Um, I do want to journey a little bit into what experientially it is like to dive into a Hasidic text. You wrote this great piece for Gashmias magazine that's sort of how to read a Hasidic text. I will put it in the show notes for this episode and people can give it a read. But um, 
I was transformed by my experiences engaging with Hasidic text. And I know many others who were too, many of us who we've struggled with different forms of traditional Jewish learning. I'm, you know, there's a lot of people out there who absolutely love the Talmud. I haven't been one of those people. I, I, I like it. I, there are stories that I gravitate to, but stylistically, it doesn't touch deep within me in the same way that Hasidic sources do. And specifically, what I'll say, and I'm, I'm curious, the other features you would shout out about what's happening in Hasidic texts that make them speak to a lot of people. But for me, people who listen to this podcast know I'm obsessed with wordplay. And it's not even that I'm obsessed with wordplay in the fact that like I think about it all the time. It's that I think horizontally. I hear a word and I connect it to other versions of how that word might be used. I, I make puns, not even every day, like many, many, many times every day. And people see that as like, oh, that's like a cute thing that you do or whatever. Like, I actually see it as like central to how I am in the world. Yeah. And so for a text to really work for me, I need it to be doing some of that as well. And when I encountered Hasidu, when I encountered Hasidic texts, I found something where the words are substance. And what I mean by that is each word, it, it means a thing. So words obviously each mean meanings. But the way that Hasidic approaches to text manifest is that each word, each letter, each phrase is itself substance. It has character. And so if there's an Aleph showing up here, Aleph being the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, then you sort of have in play all the meanings of Aleph. Whatever the word is, there's an Aleph there, so you can go play with Aleph. And then next level up, like you get certain words that every time those words come up, you can tie them to every other instance of that word in other texts. You, you start to be in this mind frame, in this heart frame of basically punning. And I know that that sounds maybe trivializing for people, but for someone like me, for whom punning is like how I construct my life, it unlocked a lot for me. And it's like, I don't know, my body actually gets an adrenaline rush. I, I, like, I'd be interested in somebody hooking me up to a machine and measuring <laughs> what my body is doing. I think in a real sense, I'm like turned on. I don't mean that sexually, but I am, an on switch is flicked. So that's for me what's powerful about Hasidic text. Are there other pieces, other like little characteristics of how these texts approach things that differ from other Jewish texts or forgetting the, their difference? Are there ways that they approach the world that, you know, have that on-off switch effect on others as well. Yeah, amazing. We have a good word in Judaism for punning. It's called midrash. There are so many ways in which Hasidic texts are kind of like a mashup of midrash, this ancient rabbinic way of reading sources, Kabbalah, and the symbolic way of reading sources, and I'll say more about this in just a moment, with something that feels distinctly modern, because it is talking about this language of interiority, which, okay, great, we've been talking about that in Judaism for 1100 years. But somehow, when the Hasidic sources talk about Pnimiut and about the inner world, they're doing something different. The Midrash actually says about itself, Midrash as a project is the Panim Sochakot Shel Torah, the smiling or laughing face of Torah. I'm smiling as you say that because panim is, you could hear it as puns, panim, pu yeah, plural yeah, pun. Yeah, exactly. 
And Abu Lafia does this, by the way. He does gematria in language games with other languages, since they're all branches of the tree of Torah. So, but Midrash doesn't take itself too seriously while also doing something very serious, which is to try and not peel back layers of meaning, on the contrary, to sort of accrue and add and transform and to show that if no meaning of Torah can be held up as the only one true meaning, that means that there is a great multiplicity of voices in the biblical text that ought to be lifted up. Kabbalah takes that to another level by speaking in a kind of symbolic language, where when I say one word, 10 others are evoked. And this kind of symbolic language is how Kabbalah, A, is kind of frustrating if you're not initiated, but B, is why Kabbalah has this power to take the stories of the Torah and to say they operate on many and multiple levels, all of which are simultaneously true. And here we're not talking about allegories in which the primary meaning is the spiritual and everything else is of secondary meaning. And once you're done getting to the spiritual meaning, you no longer need what we call the pshat, the plain sense or contextual meaning. There's a kind of simultaneity of consciousness. So Hasidic sources build on all of this and they understand that the journey into the heart of a text and the journey into the heart of the self and the journey into the heart of God are all interwoven one with the other. And they drip with a kind of love of language. And in part, that's because Hasidic sources are textual echoes or artifacts of what were originally encounters between a master and a disciple or a teacher and a student. What we think of in terms of the Hasidic library Almost all of those sources were written down either by the students or by the teacher ex post facto, long after the fact. They weren't written as books. So you're they saying are, they're podcast transcripts. <laughs> and in the way that podcast transcripts are often cleaned up and edited and slightly changed to take out ums and rambles, <laughs> and sometimes things are rearranged. You know, they are literary works. Um, every once in a while, you find one that has got to be the uncut transcript and the guy was just going on and on. And it's hard to understand <laughs> how it was really, um, really uh, coming together. And every once in a while, you'll find a scribe who's like, I can't make heads or tails of this. But everything that we have are these kind of, these were once vital encounters. And that's one of the reasons that in early Hasidism, there's this deep ambivalence to writing down the ideas because A, they're contextual. How do I know that this is what someone else needs to hear? And B, it removes it from that lived encounter. Hasidic sources are beautiful and fun and hard to read. They have their own internal vocabularies. You have to get used to it. They follow the classical Midrashic style of starting with a, a biblical verse and then immediately going somewhere else. And I think in the best ones, they really do track the verse and they don't alienate the plain sense meaning, but they amplify things that you find in the plain sense meaning, and sometimes they totally overturn it. Um, one good example for this is uh, it's attributed to the Baal Shem Tov in dozens and dozens of different forms. Who knows which one was the original one? Probably none of them. The verse in Kohelet in Ecclesiastes reads, do whatever comes into your purview to do with vim and with vigor, because uh, in hell there's no accounting or awareness, something like that. And so the Baal Shem Tov reads that as Everything that comes into your orbit, everything that comes into your purview, everything that you can do, you should do with tremendous koach, with tremendous power. But by there, he means presence. Do what you are doing with the totality of what you are, linking together your inner and external worlds. This is what he says, and he builds it on the pattern of Enoch, 
We talked a little bit about Enoch going up into the heavens, but for him, Enoch is the hero of the Middle Ages, where Enoch is understood not only as a celestial traveler, but as a shoemaker. And if you've read Martin Buber, you know this story about Enoch because Martin Buber also loved it. And Terry, just to clarify this, because you you hinted at Enoch before, but you didn't yeah. explicitly say his name when you were talking ah. about some of the early some when you talk about Dead Sea Scrolls, when you were talking about early right. texts that include like ascents to the heavens, Enoch is one of the really key examples of that. And Enoch just being one of these like extremely early humans, uh, one of the first descendants of Adam and Eve, etc. Yeah, early, long lived, and we know two things about him. He walks with God and then he isn't. He is no more. And so like many things in the Midrashic imagination, the less we know about someone, the more we want to say about that person. So he becomes this like interesting proto-Elijah figure who is close to God and then disappears and disappears because in the first book of Enoch and the second and the third and the fourth, I don't remember how many there are, but there are dozens. Sometimes they have different names. But the person who goes up into heaven to discover these mystical secrets but he's brought down to earth in this medieval midrash about him being a sandal maker, a sandalar, a tofer na'alayim. That's his uh, claim to fame in this um, midrash. It also, it's an interesting one. You find it also in the Islamic context. And the Baal Shem Tov loves that because he describes Enoch, Hanoch, as that he stitches together heaven and earth every time he is using his needle. So his needlework brings together heaven and earth, which is the transcendent and the imminent aspect of the divine. All of these things are kind of there in the original sources, but the Baal Shem Tov brings it to light. And then he says, and this is, I think, the coup de grace. He says, Enoch was able to do something that we all yearn to do, which is to bring his inner world into consonance with his outer world and to stitch together what he calls machshava, thought, Thought is in that inner realm that is defined by the infinite possibilities and ma'aseh, that concrete action that is how we act in the world. So Hanoch is not only this great ascender of heavens or this uniter of heaven and earth, he does those things precisely by acting with fullness and with presence in every moment, whether that is washing the dishes or painting the walls or whatever it might be. So then this is how he understands the end of the verse. There is no accounting or understanding in hell. So the Baal Shem Tov says, if you do not have da'at, awareness of what you are doing, and cheshbon, a sense of accounting, a reckoning of how you are living, then where do you live? You live in hell. You live in a world in which everything is arbitrary and meaningless. And that, my friend, is up to you. And I think you find it elsewhere in the Hasidic world, which is on the one hand, oh yes, the world is filled with divinity and it's filled with all these divine sparks. Yes, 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 that's all true. And also human action is critical, whether that's the action of ritual and the way that God's presence is unveiled or revealed or manifest or drawn into, these are all words that they use into this world, is through the work of human hands. One of my favorite sources from the Magid of Mezrich asks, how is God compassionate? Afata rachum, through your compassion, because God's hands in this world are your hands in the same way that God's voice in this world is your voice. We give hands to that God that has no hands, and we give voice to that God who has no voice, because the sum totality of God's voice in this world is the human world and the more than human world, which is filled with that kind of divinity also.
That's a great segue to the question that's been brewing in me, which is, I, I think it's somewhat a backward-looking question and somewhat a forward-looking question, because part of me wants to ask you to give us more examples of some of these Hasidic either ideas or practices that captured the spirit, the excitement of the people at that time. And I have a sense that many of those would capture our excitement today and do for many people. And maybe you can tell us a little bit of the story of what happened to Hasidism. As an outside viewer, my sense is it kind of went back to becoming sort of a, a more conservative or more a subset of orthodoxy. And somehow at a similar time, the reform movement uh, came up in the world and didn't come from a Hasidic background. It came from a Jewish studies background, a scientific understanding of Judaism background. And these two groups of people went down different pathways. And now the people whose parents and you know ancestors like ours who have been liberal Jews for many, many generations now are, are so distant from the lineage, let's say, of Hasidism. And so there's a certain kind of yearning for these ideas. And yet it feels like, in a sense, it's not our lineage. And so the question is, how do we get at it? And I wonder whether neo-Hasidism represents that effort, or maybe there's a different way to understand neo-Hasidism. And what we really need is some kind of neo-neo-Hasidism in the liberal Jewish world. But it's clear to me, and it's clear to me for myself, from what so many of our listeners say, that there is a real yearning for some of this material among those who we might call liberal or progressive or even secular Jews. And I guess my question is for you to flesh out some of the examples of those things that we have that yearning for, but also can you help us think a little bit about how that new synthesis might happen? So let me add a few historical notes and then we can come to the present day. You know, Hasidism, which emerges from the teachings of Rabbi Israel ben Eliezer, who did not go out to found a new, a new religious movement, Hasidism, Hasidut, means piety. It's an ancient Jewish word. Um, it's an ancient Jewish world that goes all the way back to kind of biblical sources that get translated into the rabbinic sources. Hasidut, as it comes to be what we understand it in terms of Hasidism, doesn't emerge in a kind of crystallized form until the 1780s or 90s, until the decades after the death of the Baal Shem Tov. But what they're doing is fully integrated into the fabric of Eastern European piety. It is horizontally compatible, and yet somehow people are attracted to it because they hear that something is different. There's a kind of fiery intent religiosity, which people gravitated towards. And we know that because people talk about the fact that Levi Yitzchak Berdichev or these other leaders they talk about what they did during prayer. And many of the stories are about what happens in these moments of worship that are, I think for lack of a better word, they're electrifying to the people around them. So it's not just the ideas that people are hearing, it's also what happens when you see these tremendously insightful human beings who are also great individuals of the spirit. Hasidism doesn't lose its vital edge in the 19th century. That's a common misunderstanding. The 19th century is the great golden era of Hasidism. It's a time in which new ideas were being hashed out. When I teach about neo-Hasidism, oftentimes I ask, who was the first neo-Hasidic thinker? Martin Buber, Heschel, in a certain sense, Rabbi Nachman of Bratzlav in the 18th century, who is a descendant of the Baal Shem Tov, 
in a certain sense, really is the first neo-Hasidic thinker in that he looks at what his uncle is doing by setting himself up as a Hasidic rabbi in this same town and says, this is not it. It's not about that. It's about this and it's about that. And it's about the ups and downs of the spiritual life and finding God in the void and all the other things. It's not just about this kind of A, territorial or B, um, inherited structure of leadership. Already in the classical period, in the 18th and 19th century, you see these Hasidic thinkers who are trying to reckon with their legacy. You find this also in the early 20th century with a kind of reawakening. It happens to a certain degree before the First World War, but even more so in between the World Wars. You find in that time period a sensibility among certain Hasidic thinkers that we need something different. And for some, that's doubling down on what we would think of as orthodoxy or ultra-orthodoxy, which has been a part of the story of Hasidism since the 19th century. And as the communities in that part of the world confront reform, lowercase, reform, uppercase, Hasidism makes a studied decision not to go in that direction. And already in the 1770s, when Hasidic thinkers get wind of what Mendelssohn is doing, they say, no, 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 not that, even though they're doing something which is in some cases far more theologically radical, and in some ways actually practically more radical in the way that they change Jewish observance. But in the Eastern European context, and let's say in the other parts of the Eastern European context, let's say in Warsaw, where you find Rabbi Kolonimus Kalman Shapira, better known as the Aish Kodesh or the rabbi of the Warsaw ghetto, in the 1920s and 30s, he sets forward a project of trying to renew Hasidism in the pattern of its deepest teachings, not by saying everything is worthless and we got to go back to the roots, but by saying what a Hasidic community could look like that allows for deep contemplative traditions, for deep theological awakenings, as well as a richness and robustness of sort of Hasidic community and confraternity. At the same time, there are people who are looking at Hasidism from the outside no longer appalled at these backwards Jews from Eastern Europe, or they're not those who are appalled. There are still people in the 19th and 20th and 21st century who feel exactly that same way. But there are people from Western Europe or from Eastern Europe who are looking at Hasidism and they're saying, I don't need to accept the sociological dimension of Hasidism, whether that's the strimal. Strimal being a fur hat worn in Hasidic communities, um, a kind of Hasidic garb or the adherence to one particular Hasidic community or anti-modernity in order to be able to learn a deep spiritual truth from Hasidism. There's this enormous outpouring in the 1860s and 70s of Hasidic stories, which is about this. It's not just being marketed to Hasidic people. And Martin Buber is perhaps the most well-known example of someone who takes the ethos in Hasidism and tries to translate it into his own contemporary idiom. There's a whole generate several generations of people who are looking to Hasidism and trying to translate it for a different readership. Another example of this is Hillel Zeitlin, who's born and raised in a Hasidic community, leaves that community to a certain degree, but also reads William James in translation and shortly thereafter talks about how we can create a varieties of religious experience in the Jewish lexicon, tries to rethink Judaism, both in categories that are infused with Western modes of thinking, but also from within. And Zeitlin becomes a very important figure, not because he was particularly popular or well-known, but because his writings had an enormous influence on the next generation of neo-Hasidic leaders, especially in America, on people like Reb Zalman, Zalman Shechter Shalomi, and Arthur Green, my own teacher. And Green and Zalman, in a certain way, 
transform the landscape of contemporary American Judaism by trying to do exactly what Buber was doing in his generation, which was, and Seitlin in his, which was to take what is often called the vitality, the frischkeit of Hasidism, and to bring it into a contemporary key. To speak personally, I'm drawn to Hasidic sources because of their because of the way that they treat Jewish ritual as a, an opportunity for stepping into the divine presence, for the way that they think about spiritual community, for the way that they think about the interface between text and self and God and language, and the way in which they open up entire vistas of, of modes of thinking and experience for me. On the other hand, I am not drawn to Hasidic communities because of their intellectual blinders, because of their cultural myopia, because of issues of gender and identity and sexuality, and so all sorts of things that I just, it's not my world and I don't want it to be my world. And in fact, I find myself as someone who is on the progressive left in many respects, I can't abandon nor would I want to abandon any of those parts of myself. So going into those communities was never something that I was particularly drawn to. On the other hand, the spiritual courage of these sources and the richness of their robust religious life is something that I am drawn to. And the questions that Hasidic sources ask, and to a certain degree, the answers that they give, which often come in the form of deeper questions, are no less pressing in our contemporary moment. And I think that both in terms of the way in which we think about individuals and communities and the way in which we think about bigger questions, whether it's of cosmology and theology or of very concrete questions around environmental ethics, which is much of my work in teaching these days, Hasidic sources are actually a crucial and disruptive voice, which can be very, very powerful for bringing into dialogue other modes of thinking, which are not necessarily indigenous to the Jewish landscape. So I have a final question, and it ties to our podcasts and my personal <laughs> ongoing interest in heresy. And I think if I'm being really honest, part of what draws me to Hasidic texts and to Neo-Hasidism both is that I sense in them some amount of radicalism. There's lots of different ways of understanding what heresy is, and but like I find that when I experience um, whether it's a Hasidic text from a couple hundred years ago or neo-Hasidic texts today, people go to new Jewish places in, in a way that other movements are not as comfortable. I mean, let, let's take Chabad, for example, a movement that people do not think of as particularly like radical in the grand scheme of things. But Chabad, if you look at the calendar of their year, they have a bunch of new holidays that other groups don't celebrate. They decided okay, we're going to have a bunch of holidays marking the life of this one Rebbe, and they're going to be really significant for us in all sorts of ways. That's what I want Jews to do. Like that, that's, that's what I want people to be doing across the board is saying, you know what? Yes, we've inherited this incredible corpus of teachings, of stories, of holidays, of rituals, of practices. What haven't we inherited yet that we should add in? The ways in which Hasid's in the 18th century, in the 19th century, in the 20th century, even in the 21st century, even some of the folks that, like you, I would never want to join their communities, the ways in which they go there, they take the abstract idea of, you know, wouldn't it be nice if we had X Jewish thing? Bummer that we don't. And then they make it happen. I find that Hasidic texts have a pattern of doing that or calling for that in people. And once again, that's another thing that just like gets my body 
like gets my blood flowing. And so my close, and we've talked with Jay Michelson a little bit about this. He talks about Hasidism in the context of Jacob Frank, an explicit form of what many would term heresy. And he talks about how in many ways Hasidism benefits because there's stuff that's a little more radical. And then Hasidism is kind of the, the less intense, moderated version of a kind of new way of seeing Judaism. How should we think about Hasidism in the context of heresy, of, of really going there, of really being able to say like, you know what? We're going to fill the Jewish gap that exists in the world. If we think of heresy, um, not only as something that is opposed to orthodox dogma, but as what it was in the classical context of competing schools of thought, you know, Hasidism is a model for that, both in terms of there are lots of different Hasidic paths, many of which are fundamentally incompatible, even as they all look back to the founder of Hasidism in its imagined form, the Baal Shem Tov. There is a sense that there are these uh, many different modes. One can find a place, some, anyone can find a place within in one of them. On the other hand, one of the things that I love so much about Hasidism is that Two different people can read its sources in two different ways. One will take it in a very radical direction, and mm -hmm. one will take it in a very conservative direction. And I think the literature sustains that to a large degree. And in some ways, the radical readings often import something of their own thinking onto the source. And in some ways, the conservative recapturing of Hasidism. Uh, one scholar, Shaul Magid, has called this a kind of domestication of Hasidism by scholars like myself who read it within a more traditional framework. That's also, it's a particular way of reading the sources that may emphasize a certain kind of radicalism, but also emphasizes continuity as opposed to discontinuity. I love the fact that Hasidism can support both of those things. But your point, Lex, is a very good one, which is that Hasidism is this explosion of spiritual energy, which says things about God and about praxis, which would almost be unimaginable in other contexts they cut to the edge of what we think of as acceptable within the canon of Judaism, whether that's talking about God's body in ways that the Maimonidean project would find abhorrent, or changing practices, which you know might seem like small potatoes. But on the other hand, they were fundamentally fracturing certain communal norms, which were held up as not halakha lemosha misenai, which in Ashkenazi Judaism, custom was king. And so they're breaking through that, and they're doing something different. The famous truism about Jewish life being that which happens to everyone else except more so is actually, I think, very much true about Hasidism. It's everything in Judaism except more so. It's omnivorous in its ability to metabolize things. Custom, it can hold on to. Theology, it can hold on to. New ideas, it can bring them in. It's not afraid of the body. It's not afraid of new ideas, even though in certain respects it does turn against modern social institutions, even as it also adopts them. The scholar Catherine Bell has this beautiful description about certain societies, often traditional ones, in which there is a thick ritual density. The fabric of ritual is thick. And in Hasidism, that is so true. And the flattening that I talked about earlier, where every mitzvah leads to this kind of awakening of the divine, also kind of means eating chicken soup on Shabbat, on Shabbos, and doing this and doing that, and wearing certain things. And the fabric gets stretched and stretched and stretched, and it, in some, some sense, it also becomes thicker and more capacious and more powerful, such that it is a total culture. 
it has a language, it has ways of dress, it has social institutions, it has its own universe. And that's deeply attractive and deeply compelling to people. And I think that's part of the reason of its success. Again, the sociological calcification that comes along with that is something that I find to be problematic in many respects, and certainly not where my, what the Kabbalists called the Shoresh Neshama, the soul root, leads me to. On the other hand, in Hasidism, there's no distinction in between the secular and the sacred, or between what Martin Buber called that which is sacred and that which is not yet sacred. It has this approach to religious living in which so much can be brought into that sphere, and expanding the boundaries of the holy is what's held up as the key. The expansion of the holy such that everything can become sacred is a part of this, and they are unafraid of creating new ritual, of creating new kinds of religious living. And this is when Hillel Zeitlin says he wants to take the frischkeit, that sense of freshness of Hasidism, and apply it in his contemporary world. That's really what he's trying to do, is not just say, oh, we should all be thinking about God is everywhere and all these beautiful things, but also to say we need new social networks. We need new ways of organizing society. We need new values that come from this world. We need new rituals and we need new practices. And we need to be able to do what they were doing in the 18th century and to do that in the 21st century, which again, you could say is discontinuity, or you could say that it is continuity in the evolution or the ever unfolding of the tree of Hasidism. Reb Zalman used to pray that his students would be grafted onto the tree of Hasidism. And in a certain sense, I see my own projects, both scholarly and, and personal and theological, as an outgrowth of that tree, that sacred tree of Hasidism, which has taken on many different forms and has many different branches that grow in this kind of jazz-like fashion. When we think about what the project of Judaism in our day can mean, and here I mean this not just for people who are university professors or rabbis, but I mean how Jews can make sense of their lives and how Jews can make life of meaning. I go back to that teaching from the Baal Shem Tov. That's not a text for rabbis. The idea that we can choose. Do we wish to live in a world that is arbitrary and meaningless? Or do we live in a world that is infused with compassion and courage and insight and devotion and presence? One of the great lessons of Hasidism is that is a choice that we make on a daily basis in each and every moment, whether or not we wish to live in that world which is a vacuum, or if we want to live in that world which is flush with meaning, one that leads us toward interconnection with God, with ourselves, and with other human beings. Thank you so much for joining us. I really hope you have an email address that is amaze at something, because this was amazing. To close with a pun on your name, this was an amazing conversation. Thank you so much, Ariel Mays, for joining us. Thank you so much, Lex. Thank you so much, Dan. This was wonderful. And thanks so much to all of you out there for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this conversation, and we hope that you'll tune in again in the future. We want to close out this episode first by giving a reminder of what Dan said at the top. Ariel Mays, the amazing, pun intended, guest of today's conversation, will be teaching a course in the Anyashiva, a mini course that's three weeks in length. That'll be coming to you beginning in April. So stay tuned for the course announcement with registration options, all that good stuff that's going to be coming your way soon. We hope that you'll take that and keep an eye out for our other options for mini courses this spring. The other way that, of course, we want to close is by encouraging you to be in touch with us. We have deeply appreciated all the notes that we've received over the course of this Spirituality mini-series, and we hope that you'll keep them coming. 
So here are all the different ways that you can be in touch with us if you would like to. First, there are our social media handles. That's at Judaism Unbound on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. There's our email addresses, dan at judaismunbound.com or lex at judaismunbound.com. And we, of course, encourage you to check out our website, not so much to be in touch with us, but to learn more, to check out the show notes for this episode and our other episodes. You can check it out at judaismunbound.com. The last request we like to make is that we deeply appreciate any amount of financial donation that you're able to send our way. And you can do that on either a monthly recurring basis or just as a one-time gift via judaismunbound.com slash donate. So thank you so much for listening. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.